Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Alex, and I'm MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD, Harvard MBA, and Stanford Master's in Bioengineering, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Barad. He's the co-founder and CEO of OssoVR, an award-winning surgical training program and platform helping to increase patient safety and the adoption of cutting-edge medical technology. Justin is a board-certified um, orthopedic surgeon and a bioengineering degree major from UC Berkeley and an MD from UCLA, where he graduated first in his class. Justin, it's great to have you on our show. Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome, amazing. I'm so much looking forward to the conversation today. So Justin, one thing that really jumps out in your story is that you initially didn't want to be a doctor. In fact, you started your career in video games with a deep passion and interest for programming. After a personal story regarding one of your family members, you've started your medical journey. And to put things into perspective for our audience, can you talk to us a little bit more about kind of your background, your childhood years, your road towards medical school, and your decision eventually to go off the beaten path? Yeah, happy to. Um, you know, I think like a lot of kids growing up in, in the 80s, uh, I was just very passionate about video games, and I was always very interested in kind of how things were made and wanting to create or make new things. So uh, I was really sort of dead set on you know being a video game developer. So like you said, I was programming a lot. I, while I was in high school, I got a job with Activision. I have a game credit with them, which is something I'm still very proud of. And then I had a family member become pretty ill who's doing okay now, so you know don't worry. But at the time, it was a bit of a wake-up call. And it got me wondering maybe there's a way to use software and technology, not for entertainment, but to help people. So that really changed the sort of trajectory of my life. Um, and I changed my major from computer science, biomedical engineering, which I studied at Cal, go Bears, with this really strong desire to invent healthcare technology, create something new. But I had no idea how to get started with invention. And so I was really asking around for advice, going through, honestly, a bit of a crisis, like, how do I do this? Because all the jobs I was looking at was you know, you're like standing at a conveyor belt with a clipboard. It just didn't feel like I was creating something new or inventing something. And a mentor told me something that sticks with me to this day. He said, Justin, if you want to invent something, you really need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought that one of the best ways to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So I took his advice extremely literally. Uh, I didn't really know what I was signing up for at the time, I don't think. And, uh, you know, I ended up going to medical school at UCLA and then I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training and then subsequently did a fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for sharing your journey. It's, it's a very interesting and fascinating one. I appreciate the point that you've mentioned on the use of on the potential use of game in, in healthcare and in treatment and not only in entertainment and this is something that Chad and I quite frequently think about as we're looking at the digital therapeutics space. I guess this is a good segue to my next question on one area of surgery that, that significantly needs to be improved, and it's around surgical training. I remember 
while doing the research for this interview, you've mentioned a bizarre story where you get paged at lunch one day and called to the zoo to operate on a gorilla. You kept evacuating the operation room many times because the gorilla would wake up violently from anesthesia. You talk about this gorilla experience as something that surgeons experience all the time in that they sometimes have to do a surgery or face a challenge in a surgery that they haven't seen or done before and therefore are not adequately prepared for that challenge. I think modern surgery is exponentially increasing in complexity with new interventions, uh, clinical challenges, new devices that are entering and new techniques. And that increased level of complexity does require that extra level of training. So in your view, I'm very curious to know your thoughts on what are the key problems in surgical training today and what can we change in surgical training to improve clinical outcomes, reduce mortality and make the process just more efficient. Oh, yeah, to start, I mean, to be clear, most surgeons are not going to be operating on a gorilla <laughs> during their career. It's kind of a pretty once-in-a-lifetime type event. Um, and, you know, it was just a wild story where we're sitting there eating lunch one day when our team was paged by the zoo and, you know, asked us uh, if we could drive down and operate on on this gorilla. And we're like, what kind of surgery does it need? And they're like, we have no idea because... They can't take an x-ray until it's tranked, and then, you know, they have to operate immediately. So I'm like, are we doing this? And my attending was like, oh, hell yes. You know, I don't know if I could say that on this podcast, but yeah, we were very excited. Uh, did a lot of Googling on the way down, and, you know, we're thrilled to learn that gorillas have very similar anatomy to us. Um, and, you know, had to evacuate the OR a couple times because I don't know if the viewers are interested, but gorillas wake up very violently and very rapidly from anesthesia. So his finger moved a couple of times and everyone got very nervous. So it's the only surgery I had to evacuate a couple of times. But uh, Jabari did great. Um, and that was an incredible life experience. The reason why I tell that story is that it feels like more and more we're dealing with gorilla-like situations every day, right? Situations maybe you've never seen before or only see very rarely and you have very little time to prepare. And so I, I find that, that that story is a lot of fun. And, you know, speaking of engagement, engaging for people, but it really paints a picture of what being a healthcare professional, especially a surgeon or proceduralist, is like in today's day and age. And so you ask, like, what, what are the problems that I see or that I was experiencing firsthand, not only in my training, but as a practicing surgeon? And it's really three core things with the overlying theme of the pandemic accelerating all of these dynamics in a major way. But number one is there's simply too much to learn. So if you think about it, accelerating science and technology is rapidly expanding the library of procedures we're expected to know how to do on demand. It's like we've gone from French laundry to Cheesecake Factory. There's just too many dishes. You can't do everything well. Um, and so that's where you run into kind of some of these gorilla-type situations. Problem number two is that modern surgery, modern procedures are much more complicated than traditional surgeries. So learning curves in general for robotics, minimally invasive surgery, enabling technologies like navigation, structural heart, all of these things that hold tremendous value and promise for public health and us as patients are much harder to learn. Learning curve is generally between 50 to 100 cases, whereas traditional surgery might be more around like 20, 10 to 20, honestly. So the complexity has gone up, but the way that we're training has not. And then finally, we really lack a way to assess technical proficiency in healthcare. And I always tell the story, you know, there's a little bit happening here and there and like general surgery is making some strides, 
Um, but in my own career as an orthopedic surgeon, the only time I've really been formally assessed in a repeatable, objective way, I was asked to play the board game operation and remove a few pieces without buzzing, which I did and I'm proud of. Um, but you know, that's kind of like state of the art in, in a way right now. And that would be extremely helpful for a large number of reasons. And so when you look at the data, it's even pre-pandemic was pretty alarming. So, you know, one data point, and to be clear, this is not just affecting surgeons in training, which is formal training, as you know, you know, residency and fellowship, but really affecting us at all skill levels. But some of the data we have really comes from training. And uh, there was a study in 2017 that showed that graduating residents around 31% still couldn't operate without someone helping them out or supervising, which is a concerning number. And pre-pandemic, we were projected to be about 130,000 physicians short by 2030. That is a much larger number now because we're having a lot of attrition, not just on the physician side, but nurses and advanced practitioners too, or mid-level providers. So we have a lot of problems. Um, so I was seeing all of this firsthand, and I'm still very involved in the world of gaming. And I got involved in virtual reality pretty early because I love games. I was passionate about it. I put on a headset and I'm in this villa in Tuscany and there are these books and chairs. And at the time there was no, you had to like really hack together these like discontinued motion controllers to get your hand in it. But I was able to do that. And so I was able to pick up a chair in this villa and pick up a book and a light went off in my head. I'm like, I can solve this problem. I can train surgeons with this technology and it's portable. You can train on any procedure. You could use your hands in a realistic way with cutaneous haptic feedback. You can train as a team and train remotely. And there's a whole other issue of team variability that I'd love to talk about later. Uh, that's a major challenge. Um, and you can get uh, objective assessment. Um, so kind of came up for this concept for Oso VR um, and then went full-time in, in 2016. That's amazing, Justin. I think the story reminds me of this idea of the importance of feedback circuits for learning. And it seems that in surgery, that feedback circuit is just too long. And as you've mentioned, we need an increased number of cases and kind of the cost of error is very high because it's a human life and it's health outcomes. So I'm quite excited about what, what you've mentioned in terms of using technology to improve that learning. And I think we had one case recently in our healthcare class here on Proximy. And basically what they're doing is they're standardizing and systematizing the, the surgery room and in terms of the data that's collected from there. So I get your point on the, the importance of, of that feedback and the importance of that standardized assessment. And so this brings me to the question on also VR. So you've, you've started also VR using your gaming and programming background to help surgeons improve patient outcomes with better education and assessment. After the company launched in 2016, it has seen significant growth. Uh, you've raised more than $66 million in Series C funding. So that's all super exciting. Can you talk to us about how the idea of the company, uh, and I think you alluded to that a little bit in your answer to the previous question, maybe also about the challenges that you faced uh, building up the prototype and generating investor interest. And I think perhaps our audience uh, who are interested in entrepreneurship would love to hear about kind of your journey with that. And maybe lastly, if you can explain how users can use the technology and benefit from it in their surgical careers and surgical training. So, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas in, in residency, I still do. Um, and, you know, some of them I kind of pursued a little bit. Um, some of them were medically related. I, I had a couple that were honestly quite terrible. Like uh, one was called tortilla gami, which is like a tortilla that you could fold into fun shapes for kids. Um, I'm telling this because 
those ideas I was interested in, but I wasn't passionate about and I didn't feel mission driven about. And there was something about this that was different. This felt like an existential issue to me, to myself and my friends and my family. Like I, I saw it firsthand. People, I'd be in surgery and people like, hey, Justin, can you Google what to do like while we're doing the surgery? And you know, sometimes it was someone like a friend of a friend or someone that I knew. And I'm like, this, this doesn't feel right. This is, this is kind of not good. Um, and also existential to a profession that I love dearly. I love orthopedic surgery. I love medicine. And it felt like that, you know, <laughs> might be running into some, some, some troubled waters if someone didn't try to do something about it. And in my mind, it didn't even matter if it worked or not. It's just like, I wanted to see someone trying. And so I came to a crossroads, um, after fellowship. And I think, you know, if the kind of people that are listening to this podcast are listening, like, you know, a lot of people come to me who are, Maybe they're in medical school or they're in training or they're thinking about going to medical school, but they're also thinking about going into technology or, you know, they have a really successful practice and they're trying to figure out how do I balance innovation and a career or being involved in medicine? And the answer is, I don't know. It's really hard. And there's not like a really great structure for it right now. And that's something that I'd really, I've been working on and I'm involved in UCLA Biodesign, which is an incredible program. And I was trained at Stanford Biodesign, which is also uh, very helpful. But no one, no one has the answers for what is a deeply personal and deeply difficult decision. So I just finished my formal training at Harvard and then came out to Stanford to do their biodesign program. I was a few months in and, you know, OSA was starting to sort of grow into not like a huge thing, but we had... $400,000 in the bank, uh, you know, which I didn't spend a single penny of because I was terrified because I just knew the second we'd spend a penny, like I was starting something that I couldn't stop. Like I was committing myself to something that could go on for years for who, who knows how long. So I was really terrified about that. But then I got kind of called into the principal's office. Um, and so that's like, hey, Justin, like, you know, you seem really torn. You seem like, you know, you love this program here and you love OSO, but like, I think you need to make a call. You need to make a decision. Do you want to stay on this path to academic medicine or do you want to kind of run off into, you know, a very exciting world, but a very high risk world? And like, he was very clear with me and I agree. The likelihood of failure was like 99.9%. This probably wasn't going to work. I also had 48 hours to decide, by the way. <laughs> so it's it's pretty intense. It was pretty scary. And, you know, yeah, I know. And, you know, I, to be honest, a lot of people in my life told me, don't do this. Like you've, you know, spent 14 years becoming a surgeon. You're just like right there at the finish line. Um, just why, th it seems like, it seemed like I was throwing it all away. But what I saw that they couldn't see, and honestly what felt like no one else could see, or very few people, is that I cared more about trying to solve this problem than I did about myself and that I did about my own career. And that at least someone would try. And, and I thought that was important. And there's another element that, you know, I think a lot of us who are maybe like partially along the path or maybe completed their training where you get into this mindset where everything in medicine and surgery is very regimented and you can move on to the next step when, you know, you've received a degree or you passed a test or certification. We just get used to like, hey, I can't do that until I've been sort of checkboxed in this particular way. And innovation, entrepreneurship, starting a company, it's not something you get a degree to do. I know you guys are in an MBA program, but like you don't need that. It's something you just decide to do. You tap yourself in. And so, you know, I had those realizations and I walked back into sort of the, the principal's office and, you know, I said I was leaving. And 
Um, it was October 2016, and I walked into a Starbucks by myself, working with my co-founder remotely, who lived in Vancouver at the time, and I was paying with my bar mitzvah savings up until that point, um, with a lot of people texting me saying they were pretty worried about my life decisions. But once again, I saw something that I you, that I, I just felt was important, and you know maybe nobody else did, but that didn't matter to me at the time. And you know now we're about 175 people. We raise 109 million dollars. We're being used in 30 plus countries, and we train you know anywhere from like three to four thousand healthcare professionals a month, which is pretty wild. So we're not done yet. <laughs> we have a huge way to go. Our goal is to reach 1.1 million surgeons, if not 20 million healthcare professionals, with our technology and have every procedure that you could possibly do simulated on the platform. But the the realization to me is that, you know, we're not alone. Like, you know, the, this taking that first step, tapping yourself in, it's the hardest part. And there's going to be a period of time where just people just don't see what you see. But over time, more and more people will realize, and that's that's part of the fun, is this kind of like you're like this little spark. You're this flaming ember and suddenly the fire starts spreading, starts catching, right? And becomes a movement and, and very exciting. Um, and so to see that happen is one of the most rewarding things I've ever experienced in my life. And not only to see people come together to tackle this mission and try and solve this problem, but to develop a completely unique culture that becomes kind of its own thing that is just like really marvelous to behold. And, you know, it's it's different for everyone. And, and for, for us, it's uh, a pizza, fun-loving culture. It's this idea that what we do is very serious. But, you know, you were talking about gamification earlier. There's no reason healthcare needs to be boring or, like, so miserable. And it is a little miserable right now for people. That's, that's why some people are pursuing careers like this or avoiding healthcare altogether. And it doesn't need to be that way. And this isn't, like, a panacea. It's not going to solve every problem for us. But... We see also not only as solving a problem, but coming in with this sense of positivity and optimism that I think we really need badly. We we need we need technology to be providing us hope and not uh, another thing that's going to make our lives even more difficult. Right? Everyone is still coming off of PTSD with EMRs and uh, just feeling like technology and healthcare. When when people talk about gamification, which you know I I both kind of love and hate the term. It's it's not turning things into a game. It is like you were saying earlier, Alex. It's taking advantage of like us and our brains to make things more enjoyable, more engaging, and and to feel just sort of higher quality and polished, and to make you feel good. And right now, technology and healthcare doesn't feel that way. It's a it's a slog. It's not. And it's not always it's not always even solving a problem. It's not fun to use. It doesn't look good. It's not something you want to be associated with. Or like, you know, do you see people walk running around wearing like Epic sweaters or Cerner sweaters? And like, I'm very grateful for these companies and the work that they do. But it's like, you don't want to be associated with that, right? But I, when technologies like, like Oso, like Proxmi even, like people are like, hey, this is exciting. Like, okay, technology isn't always such a bad thing. And, you know, it feels like, okay, it's our turn now. It's our turn to get something cool, something we want to be associated with, talk to our friends and family about that they're excited about, that they can understand. And that's the promise of technology that I think has been missing a little bit in healthcare. And it's just the idea that we're important too. We use these things. We're associated with these things. And it feels like we've just been cast off and just like forgotten about. And I think now technology is much more provider-centric and not 
trying to disintermediate us as much and also to provide a fun experience, not just for patients, but for us and to make our day-to-day a little more enjoyable, a little more positive, little by little. So anyways, that's, I'll get off my soapbox there, but I think we have a lot more optimism we can bring to healthcare. It's amazing. It's miraculous. Like, look at what we can do. But that's not what you hear people talk about. That's not the way it feels when you're doing it. And I think we could just sort of like massage a few things and introduce a few new technologies and increase the quality of our day-to-day and really get to a better place where people are, are like, hey, this is a career I'd like to pursue. This makes sense again. Justin, the point that you've mentioned on, on Epic and Cerner, it made me laugh a little bit because I think that's that's a physician's nightmare to see kind of people walking in Epic and Cerner sweaters all, all around the hospital. <laughs> right, you probably hide in a closet if you saw someone wearing that. Exactly. I think like Epic and Cerner are a very good demonstration of a very valuable technology, but a technology that doesn't address like that usability and that enjoyment aspect of using the technology. So I certainly appreciate your point there. And I think it must be very nostalgic to look back at the last couple of years from your side and see how you you grew the company to more than 100 people. Chad and I have massive respect for that and and we hope to be in that spot um, sometime soon. So lots of respect for you on, on that side. And I remember when I first arrived to Oxford in 2018, coming from Syria, uh, where I practiced medicine, one of my supervisors was working on a project called Life-Saving Instructions for Emergencies. And it was basically VR training for healthcare workers in low uh, resource settings to deal with simple emergencies. And when I saw that, I just thought about how much value there is for technology, such as the ones that also is developing from a global health perspective and addressing the lack of educational opportunities for healthcare workers around the world. So big kudos to you guys on what you're doing. Lastly, before I hand over to Shad, I also echo your point that there is no curriculum around entrepreneurship. I think the way Shad and I hope to think about medical degree is that it becomes more of a platform degree where kind of you get a basic level of education, like a very good level of education and in multiple kind of healthcare aspects that would allow you to kind of pursue different opportunities after. But I very much appreciated the conversation and really enjoyed it. And I'll hand over to Shad for a couple of questions from his side. Great. Uh, Thank you, Alex. And thank you, Justin. Really appreciating the conversation so far and and a lot of really cool insights. I guess some of the things that I wanted to reflect on uh, was this notion of increasing complexity of surgeries with, with the passage of time. And, you know, older surgeons always like to quip that, you know, they used to work longer than us. You know, now we've only worked 80, 90 hours a week. They used to work 100, 110 hours a week. But I remember one time older surgeon pulled me aside and said, hey, like, yes, we used to work longer, but the patients you take care of are a lot sicker than the patients we took care of because, you know, all our sick patients ended up passing away. And so, like, I, I certainly echo your point that, like, the, the, the complexity of surgeries and the complexity of patients in the hospital have, like, exponentially increased with the passage of time. And, and how we're training our surgeons or just our medical doctors in general has not And the whole, I guess, see one, do one, teach one is somewhat outdated. And that might work with like removing a JP tube or or putting on a vac or something. But with complicated surgery, it doesn't work because as Alex mentioned, the the cost of error is quite high or some cases are rare, like, you know, an ED thoracotomy that you rarely see. You, You need to be well prepared before you actually run into that for the first time. What's interesting is we had Khan from Khan Academy, who's an HBS grad, come and chat with us a couple of months back and and he mentioned how sort of current education system is focused on the concept of fixed time and variable scale 
So, you know, undergrad is four years or general surgery residency is five years. But instead, his whole vision is moving to a more of a fixed skill and variable time mindset, or at least variable experiences. So where you graduate based on experiences and and skills rather than sort of the passage of time. So it's interesting how different people are thinking about not necessarily just surgical education, but changing how we view education broadly. We talked already a little bit about mentorship. And, and, you know, I've read in an interview you did a while back that your mentor, Dr. Henry Lin, gave you some great advice when you spoke to him about a desire to invent something. So just curious about what that conversation was like. And, and given that there's a lot of physicians out there trying to expand their roles and, and go beyond the traditional MD path, what role do you think mentorship can play in their journeys? And, and now that you're six, seven years out, and I'm sure a lot of people reach out to you, how do you think about mentoring the next generation of clinicians? Well, yeah, I think um, I think it's really important that, I mean, part of, you know, especially the early stage phase of innovation or, you know, a startup is really building your network and, and your network of advisors. Because the thing is, is that it depends what you're doing. You know, if you're in like an established space and established business and it's not like, you know, truly like category defining, it's a little bit easier because there's just like more information out there. But if, you know, like us, there was nothing like this had really existed before. So, you know, you get three of the smartest people in the world telling you completely mutually exclusive things and you're like, okay, nobody knows what the right answer is here. So, which is both reassuring and also um, a little scary at the same time. So, you know, when I was um, kind of nearing the end of residency and really starting to feel more and more that I really wanted to be involved in technology, start something new, potentially, I asked a friend of mine who is a serial entrepreneur, like, you know, what what can I do? Like, how can I start to build up my skill set or what should I be working on? And he's like, just start networking, like just start meeting people. doesn't matter who. And just reach out to them. Just talk to them and ask them to introduce you to two people and then ask those two people to introduce you to two people, right? And eventually you'll get a very large network. And I can't tell you the number of times where just some random person I met, maybe at like a bar, introduced me to someone else who introduced me to someone else. And that person ended up leading our series B. Like literally that was a, that's a, one of our stories. That's one of the networking stories. And I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> like it's both amazing, but also scary, right? Like what if I didn't go to that event or what if I didn't like talk to that guy while I was waiting for my old fashioned? Um, so Networking is really important and, you know, getting getting a network of advisors uh, critically so. And, you know, just it's it's nice to have a good mix of people who've kind of done it before. And then also people that are at your level and you can kind of it, things are changing so fast that if a person has done it like two years before you, their knowledge might be a bit dated already. And so, you know, having someone at your level and you can kind of like you have like piece A and they have piece B, but together you kind of have a whole. And also this is a very stressful pathway. Like. I do not recommend doing this for like everybody. Like if if you're going to like start a company or something like that, do it because it's like the only thing that you can think of doing and it's just like you don't want to do anything else cuz this is it's it's fun at times, but it is extremely stressful. More so than taking care of patients. I was shocked by that. And I used to like make fun of people who said that like tech was stressful and like innovative startups were stressful, but then I went through it and I was humbled very quickly. So, um part of developing that peer group is having people that can provide support to you because you have to really manage your psychology through this, which uh, Ben Horowitz talks about in the hard thing about hard things, my favorite startup book. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a hard road and you, you need someone a lot like residency, um, like people who haven't done it 
will not understand the stresses that you're under. So it's like you can't really uh, confide or, or or vent to them. So having people who are like kind of going through it with you is extremely helpful. Um, so back to <laughs> like uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, I think it's very important in general when you're trying to make change and, and especially in healthcare to really communicate to stakeholders and incumbents that you understand and respect them. You come in and you're like, oh, these like old dinosaurs, they didn't have to like, they had it easy, even though they're in the hospital for like 120 hours. It's, they're not going to listen to you after that, you know, and also it doesn't feel good. Um, so I want to point out a couple of things. One is that um, residency as it exists was a huge success. It was invented by William Halstead and Johns Hopkins, but it also has kind of an interesting origin story. Um, you can actually read some papers about this, but uh, Halstead, you know, was this super famous surgeon, technically gifted, um, and sort of had a bit of like a, a downfall from a technical standpoint when a friend of his introduced him to this miracle drug called cocaine. Um, so he became very excited with cocaine and started kind of doing research on himself and unfortunately became really addicted. And so his friends and family had an intervention with him, which he welcomed because um, he was he had pretty good insight despite his drug addiction. And so he went into rehab and rehab at that time consisted of treatment with a drug called morphine. So he then became addicted to both cocaine and morphine. So it's like a pretty horrific tragedy. And so at, around this time, he's at Hopkins and he's very aware that he's just not the surgeon that he used to be. Um, he was both dangerous and uh, painfully slow as they write. So he's like, how can I set up a system here where I can continue to help patients, but I don't put them at risk? And at the time, the way that surgical training worked was it was a one-to-one -one apprenticeship model. So you just you know, had kind of one apprentice follow you around for a few years. So he set up, at the time, what was like a pyramid-shaped system, like people actually got voted off the island. It very quickly became more of a square shape where everybody made it through. But it was that you had this graduating autonomy, right, graduating levels of responsibility where each level does a little bit more and supervises the level below. And what that did is basically he didn't even need to see patients because the residents would operate on patients, would make decisions, and he would just kind of sign off on it. And he could be in his office doing drugs and not putting patients at risk. So it's kind of a crazy story when you think about it, but it makes sense. Like, where else would this system have come from, right? Um, and it makes sense when you think about it. And it was like, I, th I don't think anything else would have worked as well at the time. So it's, it's a wild story, but that's kind of what we've been left with. But that was designed for a def very, as you describe, a very different world than what we're in now. There were very few surgeries that you had to do. People were okay with residents in their second or third year of training, just sort of independently doing surgery on them. People are very much not okay with that now, right? It's a lot more liability concerned. People are much more aware. We don't even want to do it, right? It's stressful for us um, to a certain extent. So... Um, I think it's helpful to know kind of the history of, of what we've been dealing with. And yeah, in certain ways, our predecessors did work a lot harder than us. And they were in the hospital for hundreds of hours a week. It was grueling. But I think their jobs in certain ways were also more satisfying. They had more autonomy. The surgeries they had to do were smaller in number, so they could get better at them very quickly. And they 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 had more confidence and um, just felt better about the work that they do, where we're spread much more thinly along all of these procedures. We're doing a lot more administrative work with very little autonomy. And while we're working much fewer hours now than we were before, although I find it funny that people are making fun of me as like a lazy person for 80, only 80 hours a week, right? Like in any other industry. Um, 
So I think, yes, I think it's, we're starting to see the limits of kind of what is possible in the current system. And yeah, I agree with what you're saying that certain areas like in Canada, they're ex- experimenting with what you described is often called competency-based training rather than time-based training. So the idea is that why, why are we just saying, hey, everyone's in here for five years? And it's just sort of like random what you're exposed to and then you're out. And some people might be able to be done sooner. And maybe some people need to be in for longer, right? And we don't really have a good system for that right now. So what they found in Canada is that when you implement some, a competency-based training where it involves a lot of simulation and a lot of assessment of like, okay, like here are the procedures you need to learn. And sort of when you've mastered certain milestones, you move on to the next level and then eventually you're done. You could shave up to a year of training time. And so that's pretty significant. And then, you know, why don't we look back even further? Like, why is medical school four years? Like, what, what are you even learning in medical school? I often, you know, maybe I'm the, <laughs> I'm the worst doctor in the world, but I always tell the story. My first week of internship, I am, you know, on plastic surgery rotation, and I get called by a patient, and he's like, doctor, I'm very anxious, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. He just had surgery like a couple hours ago. So I'm there with the nurse, and, you know, I'm feeling very excited to be a doctor, and I look at him, I go, well... I hope you feel better. And I walk out of the room. The nurse is like, hey, do you want to give him some medication for that? I look at her and I go, there's medication for that? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, sure. Like, show me what to do. It's just, you know, obviously you learn a lot in medical school and it is really important, but there's a lot you don't learn. And I think it's really worth taking a look to see if it, are four years really necessary for what, like, what are we trying to produce here? And you look at certain medical schools, like NYU is three years now, right? And I'm like, well, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Would two years be possible and really kind of focus it down? Because we are missing out on a lot of intelligent, excited, motivated future doctors and people like you and Alex, honestly, who maybe would have gone all the way if it wasn't such a huge time commitment. And that would help us because we don't want people to make crazy life decisions to innovate. We want to keep it in the fold and also help you because the further along you get with your training, the better job you're going to do innovating, the better you're going to understand the problem like Henry Lynn told me so long ago. And it's just, you're not, you're not getting all of that knowledge if you just do a couple years of med school or you just finish med school. Um, as I feel like my story illustrates to some degree, right? Um, so we, we, we need to like, look at this and be like, Hey, there, there's something real going on here. And we want, our doctors to be the best of the best. We want to attract the best and the brightest. And, you know, really, really smart people are looking at column A of like 14, 15, 16 years and column B of like, hey, after college, I can be making $200,000 a year and become a vice president in like six, seven years and be treated as an adult throughout that. It's it's becoming harder for people to to make that decision and that sacrifice. And so I think we really need to make it easier for them while not sacrificing any of the quality that we have for healthcare and and patient care. Yeah, thank you, Justice. There's really so much there, very rich sort of answer filled with insights. I guess some things that I just want to quickly reflect on is this notion of competency-based training. I guess superficial intuition might say that, you know, some people would graduate, let's say, gen surge residency in three or four years. Some people might take six or seven years. But, you know, in reality, you could probably or you know lower the number of time like the average or the median time it takes to graduate general surgery residency could theoretically be lowered from five to four years if you just move towards a competency-based training and i think the insight there is that 
the, the incentives would very much change. The structure and the process of the training would very much change. And so types of cases that, that you would do would very much change. And so I think you, you would produce relatively competent surgeons at a faster uh, time period, even with some of the countervailing cultural changes that are taking place where you know patients are more aware there's increasing liability and you can't just willy-nilly start you know operating on people without any practice and so it's a very interesting thought experiment and the other thing i wanted to reflect on is this notion of networking you know it, it tends to be a dirty work for doctors certainly not a dirty word in in sort of the business world i sort of tell clinicians or, or pre-meds to to sort of think about it in a more holistic context, you know, just instead of thinking about it as networking, just think about, you know, how can I help this person and just reach out to as many people as possible? Or what can I learn from this particular human being? And like you said, once I start having all of these conversations, it just builds a very, very relatively robust ecosystem. And one thing that I really like to do is I like to connect you know, different people within my network to one another. I think there's beauty there to being a connector between two different types of people. And more often than not, people very much appreciate that. Again, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. I wanted to finish us off by reflecting on entrepreneurship generally. I think many in our audience are young professionals who are seriously thinking about entrepreneurship and maybe looking for advice or guidance from successful people uh, such as yourself. And entrepreneurship historically has been considered a relatively risky proposition as most high growth companies end up failing, even though, you know, I would argue that failed founders learn very, very valuable skills that could be very helpful down the line. But you mentioned yourself that you thought that there was, you know, 99.9% chance or something that, that you would fail and that many people thought that you were throwing your life away. And you've said yourself during this interview that it's incredibly stressful. But, you know, I guess to play devil's advocate here a little bit, you know, we've spoken with a previous guest, Iman Abu Zaid, who is the CEO of Incredible Health, who mentioned that in a, in a very advanced economy such as the U.S., you know, with the right background, being an entrepreneur isn't as risky as it would be in another part of the world. And, and that's because there's, you know, access to networks, access to capital, and the whole ecosystem just in general is incredibly mature. I'm just curious how you personally think about the risk reward of going down the entrepreneurship route. Maybe it's evolved a little bit from six, seven years ago when you started versus now. And what advice would you have for other MDs who are thinking about entrepreneurship and, and how should they think about the risk award balance of going down that path? Well, I mean, it really depends where you are in your career. You know, if you're a fully trained clinician and you have like a huge nest egg and you could always fall back on that, then yeah, maybe it's not like financially risky, but I mean, the truth is the data doesn't lie. Like this probably is not going to work, you know? And another thing is that, you know, depending on you know, probably most of us who are like somewhat involved in healthcare, like are not used to failure to some degree, uh, you know, taking care of patients, bad things happen all the time, but just it's a, it's a bit different than it doesn't feel as personal. Um, and this is like you are signing up for, you know, every now and then pretty spectacular failures and then daily micro failures, like something bad is going to happen every single day, maybe multiple bad things. And I think that's hard for people to deal with. Um, and I think also you really need to come in. Um, you know, I, I think to be an entrepreneur, like you have to be confident and believe in what you're selling um, and the story that you're telling. But you need to be very humble. 
And I think especially physicians and ones that are maybe more advanced, like come in thinking they know everything. Certainly I did. I was like, how hard could this be? They cut people open for a living, right? It's like, that's way more complex. And I knew, I, I knew less than nothing. I was humbled very quickly. And I think if you come in and, you know, whether you're starting a company or you're involved with a company, like if you're coming in with the mindset that they're like, oh, they're so lucky to have me. I know everything. They need to do everything I'm saying. Like you should not be doing this. Um, and I think, I think that's a really challenging thing, both um, I think whether you're on the, the sort of physician or sort of healthcare professional or, or someone experienced in healthcare or the company side. Like even for me, it's, it's hard to figure out who are the, the, the medical folks that are going to be good for us to work with um, because it's not everybody is, is really suited for this. You really need like a particular kind of set of skills and, and kind of like the way that you interact with the team, especially outside of healthcare. And we're just so used to a particular way of working. Now, I know I'm like saying that it's stressful, it's hard, you'll most probably fail. But, you know, if, if it is what you're truly passionate about and like that's all you can think of, and I think if you check those boxes, it is pretty incredible. Like, like I said, to, to see a team coalesce around a problem that you thought you were the only one that was passionate about, to see a culture develop, uh, to see, you know, people talking about something when, you know, you're not in the room or not around, like they, they, oh, it's like, oh, I've heard of that. Like, it's wild, you know, this didn't exist a few years ago. And it is, it's a fantastic feeling. It's, it's incredible. So I definitely don't want to um, uh, sort of diminish that. And I think also there, in healthcare, we can get stuck in a bubble, you know, it's like, hey, there's only one way to progress in life. This is how it works. And there is a whole wide world out there. And you guys are, are really deep in it. And just knowing that, there are a variety of ways to do things and some things we do better in healthcare and some things we don't. Um, and so you can really learn a lot with the way the world works and working in a variety of working environments. And, you know, if positioned correctly, you can advance very quickly in your own career, much quicker than you would in healthcare. But once again, it's, you know, I would say it's not super common, um, but, you know, for certain people, I mean, um, one of my friends, Michelle Longmire is the CEO of Medible. And like, we were both like, just sort of like, you know, a handful of people together, like kind of wild ideas. And I mean, her company is like 400 people and she's like an international celebrity at this point. Um, and she started as a you know part-time dermatologist at Stanford. Um, so it, it really can propel you and in, in your career. And it is really exciting and it's fun. And it's fun to develop a culture, but I, I don't want people to come into it thinking that it's gonna be easy or it's gonna be a cakewalk. It is, it is quite challenging. Most often it won't work, um, but if it's if it's if you're passionate about the problem that you're trying to solve and you know you feel like you have a real mission, I I think there's always a way forward and I, I think you can really make it happen. But if you're just kind of like, hey, this will be fun, I think that's where you know, like I think people just go, this isn't worth it, you know, it could, because it it takes all of you. You really have to commit your whole self to this. Um, so I'll leave it on that. I could not be ha happier. I would never have traded this for anything. Um, I'm just so amazed at what Oso has become, what we're doing in the world, and, and to be a part of what is feels like has become a movement. Um, so I hope that I can inspire and guide other um, kind of aspiring or current healthcare entrepreneurs because we got a lot of problems that need to be solved. And so I, I want more people to do it for sure, but I want I want them to be successful. No, incredibly thoughtful and, and candid advice, Justin. And you know, we're a big fan of Medible over here. I was speaking with Justin Norton a couple of months ago, uh, who's a partner at GSR Ventures, about, and, and I think they're invested in Amedable. And, and the DCT space is, is a space I've been... They're invested in Oso as well. 
I know Justin very well. Oh, they are. Very cool. And so I've been following the DCT space quite closely and, and very bullish on the space. And Alex and I are invested in a DCT company as well here out of Boston. A couple of things to reflect on. I, I think ultimately the decision uh, someone makes uh, has to be you know, very personal. Like what you're trying to get at is you have to be very thoughtful about the decision you want to make. If something is your passion and you're like dreaming about entrepreneurship and you're miserable in the OR, well, that's a relatively easy decision, in my opinion. Uh, I know some people will say, hey, like stay miserable and like continue down that path because like you've worked so hard to do it. That's just like, a, I think, a fundamental disagreement I have. But again, I know that's a point of privilege because some people may have a lot of debt and they have to like go through that path to sort of just like keep going. And not everyone has the opportunity or the time or the flexibility to, to pivot very significantly. And all this nuance I want to inject into the conversation. I think generally what Alex and try to do, Alex and I try to do with our podcast is just tell physicians and physicians to be that not to have an overly narrow conception of what success means. I think we have a very sometimes too ambitious of a vision of what physicians can be in the 21st century. And again, I always say almost in every episode that being a clinician is a very noble full-time job. Like, you know, we need good, thoughtful clinicians, very intelligent clinicians to take care of patients. But uh, ultimately, if that's not what you want to do and, and your passions lay elsewhere, it's something you have to like really thoughtfully consider. Again, this has been a really, really interesting conversation on, on our end. And I hope you enjoyed it too, Justin. Just to finish this off, you know, how can our audience learn more about what you do and, and follow the impact that you and also VR has had? Yeah, you can check us out at ossovr.com, um, and you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Great. Thank you so much, Justin. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be on the podcast. Chad, that was a fantastic conversation with Justin. I really enjoyed it. And I think the two cents from my side are around the point that he mentioned on building up a board of advisors when you're starting your entrepreneurial journey, I think I found that idea quite insightful because when you go down the entrepreneurship path, there is a learning curve that you have to climb on. And it's very important that you maximize the speed at which you're learning. And there's two elements, I think, that are very important to that. First, you need to kind of have a very rapid cycles of iteration where you're getting feedback quite quickly on whatever you're doing and you're adjusting your behavior based on that feedback. And I think maybe like, for example, if you're leading your first round, I think it gets very helpful to when you're pitching to investors to have your co-founder and, and kind of like ask your co-founder for input and feedback and, and how you can improve the pitch or have external parties involved there and, and get their feedback. So I feel getting the feedback is a quite an important element. And I think the other element and the one that Justin mentioned is surrounding yourself with advisors who've done the same thing and who are knowledgeable about the space because they will be able to provide quite important insights that would maximize kind of your learning and the speed at which you go up the learning curve. So that's my side, but over to you, Shad. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I, I completely agree with that. I, I think the learning from my side, and there are many, is just how thoughtful Justin was about the notion of pivoting and moving towards entrepreneurship. Because people tend to always think that the grass is greener on the other side, especially in clinical medicine, when you're going through the grind of medical school, residency, fellowship, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And you sort of see your other friends who are in their late 20s or earlier mid 30s, who are in finance or entrepreneurship, who are 
from the outside seemingly very successful, you might get a little bit of, as they say, FOMO. But in reality, let's take entrepreneurship. I think starting and, and building a high growth company is incredibly challenging. And as Justin, you know, argues himself, I think arguably more stressful than actually taking care of sick patients. So it's just not a decision to be taken lightly at all and not something one should do without a, a good plan and a, and a good backup plan. Uh, but again, my personal bias is that if you ultimately are very passionate about it, it's, it's a path that you should uh, heavily consider, uh, regardless of whether it's entrepreneurship or healthcare policy or investing, whatever it is. Um, so that was my big takeaway from this episode. Really, really enjoyed the conversation so far. Join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. Remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast, and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next week.